The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned. Now we finally come to kingdom. So, so as far as we've gotten is as far as I thought I was going to get last night. And so we come to government in the land. So here we're talking about Joshua entering, bringing them in, 12 tribes, moves to United Kingdom, moves to Divided Kingdom. You see the conquest banner, the image of paradise echoing the Garden of Eden, the first time the homeland image shows up fully filled, meaning that this was the promise since the days of Abraham, that they would find a home. We see it happen here, and then a lot more sin. So, key text. But they would not listen, but were stubborn. That's the story we're going to see, and it's in direct fulfillment to what Moses was told in Deuteronomy chapter 31. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. The Old Testament called for faith, but the people were unbelieving. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and they became false. What you revere you will resemble. If you go after empty things, you will become empty. We are what we worship. You will begin to look more like God if you increasingly give importance to Him in your life. But if you're going after empty things, bound up in pornography, driven by anger, pride, position you'll become like a cistern that's broken and the emptiness will increase and increase. They went after things that were false, they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Therefore, the Lord was angry. It wasn't just random. God doesn't get angry randomly. Oh, I just want to hurt you today. Bang. It's not our God. All of the violence that we read about in the Old Testament is there because of sin. Sin that grew out of hearts that were cold. Hearts that wanted to sin, wanted to rebel. This was about my kingdom rather than his kingdom. And so the story is just God taking that sin very seriously. So we enter in conquest. Yahweh the warrior... This wasn't about Israel. This was about the Lord. Remember how the spies had gone in? God said, we can do it. I am enough. I will fight for you. And the ten spies said, no. Joshua and Caleb said, yes. And God said, no. Judgment. Forty, thirty-eight years in the wilderness. This entire generation is going to perish. No, no, we will follow God. And then they went off and tried to win the battle on their own. And they lost. They end up with Joshua. 
winning at Jericho, but then due to sin, they lose at Ai. All in order to tell us, this is about God. He is the warrior. And as soon as we heard it, says Rahab, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The remarkable contrast in the book of Joshua is that you have Rahab the Canaanite who is affirming the Lord as if she's an Israelite. And then you have Achan who's being driven by worldly things as if he were a Canaanite. God shows no prejudice. Even though he had declared judgment on the Canaanites, if any of them, like Rahab, affirms the Lord is God, he will receive them welcomely, welcomingly. And if any Israelite turns from the living God and says, I'm going to go my own way, well, he'll judge them like the Canaanites. Woe to us! says the Philistines. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. I referenced that text earlier. So God brings them in. Joshua entering in, leading the conquest. And then, after the days of Joshua, the period of the judges. They enter in, and what's happening is God is setting up paradise. Now, remember the original vision was that the Garden of Eden was not complete. It was perfect, but not complete. Adam and Eve are placed in the middle. They're supposed to image God, and the vision is that they would increasingly fill the earth. That is, take the presence of God globally, that the world can see. The glories of this God, that his glory can fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk says. So in putting Israel into the land, he's initiating the fulfillment of a key part. The Mosaic covenant is stage one in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to make them into a great nation in the land. But that's never the end. They're waiting for the deliverer to rise when Abraham will move from being a father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations. But until that day comes, they are in the land as a single kingdom with Abraham as their father. And it hasn't moved and gone global yet. But the vision is that the paradise was never supposed to stay on its own, that the king would come and all of a sudden he would begin to possess the gates of his enemies, that he would take the single kingdom and begin to expand it from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But only when the king would rise. Here in paradise, they would be home. Let's see how it works. It's always intriguing to me as I talk to students, you know, to try to see how they read their Bibles. Have you ever gotten to the point in Joshua, you know, your annual Bible reading, you get up to Joshua and you come to the tribal allotments section. And all of a sudden your heart sinks because you know you're in for high level um, food, right? You're just... I know this is going to fill me. As they overview all the boundary cities of each tribal spot. There was one time in my life where I went through and I created maps of all the tribes based on 
I mean, I drew them with colored pencils, and that's all fine, but that's not the point. Why all the detail? We could ask the same question regarding the tabernacle building instructions. Eight chapters. I get to read through, just walking through all the details of the type of fabrics that have to be used and the exact dimensions of every piece of furniture. And all of a sudden, my heart is just extremely edified. What's it there for? Well, well that's there, I think, in order to highlight the holiness of God and that he, that holiness cannot be taken lightly. The level of importance of the one who will dwell in this house demands great care when you go to shape the house. Well, how about here? All of the tribal allotments come to an end with this passage. You walk through all the tribal allotments and then you come here. This is what it says. Thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. What's the point of all the details? Every single city, every single point. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord, every detail is about him. That it's, it's not that we have to remember all the spots, but as we're reading through it, and, and it's okay, I think, to speed up in this section, but we're reading through it and... We're supposed to say, is there anything that can help me here? What's the point? How's this devotionally supposed to minister to my soul? This is it. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not one of all their enemies had withstood them. Why? Because the Lord had given all their enemies into their, land, into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All of them came to pass. So if you're the Sunday school teacher with your third graders and you're talking to them about the big God who is able, well, it's probably not the best idea, you know, to spend 13 weeks on the 13 chapters of tribal allotments. But you could spend one and get to this point. Show them a map that says all these details are right here in this text. And this is what it says it's there for, in order that we might stand in awe as later readers of the book not to draw maps, though that's not a bad thing, but to stand to be reminded God was faithful. Every single word that he promised, he did. The whole book of Joshua, remember how it starts? Joshua, this word of the law, don't let it depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. The whole question in Joshua is, is this. God was faithful to his word, will you be faithful to his word? God was faithful. Will you be faithful? And there's a big question mark because the, the book ends, unlike the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses passes the baton to Joshua, Joshua ends with Joshua dying. They bury Joseph's bones. Again, the faithfulness of God. And then it says, and Eliezer died. And all of the rest of the people that were part of that generation died. Period. 
and you turn to Judges. And it's just like, well, what's going to happen? God was faithful to his word. Will Israel be faithful to the word? And then we read the book of Judges that tells us they weren't. So they all get their spots as a 12 tribal league. Now you remember there was Abraham who had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 boys. Those 12 boys don't all become the 12 tribes. Remember, Levi doesn't get a tribe because he's going to be the pastor in each of the tribes. So the Levites are going to be dispersed and they're going to be the overseers of the local congregations in each tribe where people will go for their regular um, weekly worship. But then there will be three pilgrimage feasts where they'll all gather to Jerusalem, in the pre- to, uh, ultimately Jerusalem, but first at Shiloh. I used to read it Shiloh, but that's probably how most of you read it, Shiloh. And that's where the presence of God was at this time. That's where he manifests himself and where the tent was put, the tabernacle tent, and the Ark of the Covenant of God was there. And people were to gather there, Moses said, three times a year at the place that the Lord would choose. But the Levites are spread out, and so we get the 12 total. If the the 12th is Levi and he becomes the pastor of all the tribes and doesn't get specific turf, then how do we get 12 and not just 11? Joseph. Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Joseph's two boys become tribe 11 and tribe 12. Joseph doesn't get a name. There's no tribe called Joseph. It's just his two boys become two of the tribes. So this period is filled with sin. Here's Judges 2. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, all that generation of Joseph... I mean, sorry, of Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Hear that. A brand new generation rises and they neither know God nor the deeds of God. Now, I used to wonder, is this, could, could this be just more than one generation? Well, Judges 17, which gives a horrific story, tells us that Phineas was the high priest in that day. Well, Phineas was the son of Eliezer, who died and, and helped lead. He, he was the high priest in the days of Joshua. So we're talking only one generation. One generation of moms and dads who failed to tell the stories. They failed to instruct their children. They failed to shape worldviews. Oh, I'm not going to tell them what to believe. I'll leave it to the schools to do that. I'll leave it to the society to do that. The music, the movies. No, be an intentional parent. It only takes a generation. And there is emptiness and hopelessness. A single generation rises up. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked Yahweh to anger. 1 Samuel 3, 1. Book of Samuel opens. It's the same period of the judges. There's no king yet. 
And it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were no frequent visions. God wasn't talking. The people weren't listening. There was deep need. Here's the refrain that shows up at the end of the book, over and over again in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It raises this question. How does the royal deliverer that was anticipated in the book of Genesis, who would be an offspring of the woman, an offspring of Abraham in the line of Judah, he would be the star whose light would overcome all other starlights. He would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of the enemies like Moab. What would happen if he came? Would people still do what was right in their own eyes? There was no king in the land. Everyone did as they would. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, says Hannah. This is the first time in the Bible where the future king is called the Christ the Messiah. It's the first time that term, anointed one, is applied to this future hoped-for king. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. How will he do it? Will it be like he did in the flood where he's just up there and makes it happen? No. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed The imagery of of a horn is like a, a ram's horn, ready for battle. It's an image of strength all throughout the Bible. And this king will have as his key um, expression of power the living God. This God will be the one who strengthens this king and brings justice to the world. But Israel shows up and they want a different kind of king. Now, I don't think it was wrong for Israel to have a king. If you go to Deuteronomy 17, God actually says to Moses, when you come into the land and you ask for a king like the nations, it says that very line. You ask for a king like the nations, then this is the kind of king you need to have. He needs to be an Israelite. He can't be focused on many women, much wealth, or war horses. The one thing that he has to do is be a man of the book, having his own copy of the instruction that I'm giving in this book, says Moses. Have it written down in the presence of the Levitical priests because they're the guardians of worship. Have it written down so that it's sure that it's correct and then he's supposed to read it. He can't just have it on his phone. He actually has to turn it on and read it every day of his life. And then it says, what will be produced is the fear of God. And as that fear is produced, he will reign and oversee the people in godliness and not in oppression. That's what the king was supposed to be. But here it says, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. Remember, it says the people wanted a king like the nations to judge them. They didn't want God to be their judge. They wanted a human judge. Someone else who could define what was right and wrong rather than Yahweh defining what was right and wrong. 
Indeed, they wanted a king like the nation's kings who went their own way rather than God's way. God's vision of kingship was always that the king would not replace him, but would represent him. Israel wanted a king to replace the Lord. God says, fine, give them what they want. Give them Saul. Saul gets overcome by David, who is godly, but not the one. It's intriguing we don't see this, but I I truly think it's in the text. Saul's only good battle that he won was against Nahash. Now what you don't see in the English text is that Nahash is the very word for serpent that we find in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Nahash is the serpent. And this king's name is serpent. And Saul's only victory is over the serpent. And I think the narrator of Samuel is drawing us in, wanting us to think, could Saul be the one? But then immediately after Saul beats the serpent, Nahash, the king, it's Saul's fall narrative. Everything goes wrong so that you and I, the reader, know, oh, he's not the one. He's not the real serpent slayer. What's even more intriguing is that David, right after the covenant God makes with him in 2 Samuel 7, David's last good battle. Who's it against? It's against the son of Nachash, the offspring of the serpent. King David goes to battle against the serpent's seed, and he wins. And up until this point, the book has gone out of its way to say David is the image of royal ideal. He is aligning with all that God wanted for kingship. And right after he slays the seed of the serpent, right after this is his fall narrative. Immediately is the fall narrative with Bathsheba. And the rest of the book clearly identifies David is not the serpent slayer. But 2 Samuel 7, just before his fall narrative, told us, No, David's not the one. Look for his son, a future one. I will be his father. He will be my son, and his throne will last forever. He is the serpent slayer. So you and I are the reader of of this story, the story of God. He's he's moving it out for us. It's, It's a drama that draws us in. And we're supposed to see the signals in the text that are there to say, no, David is not the one. Look for someone greater than David. His life in some ways pointed to him. But David himself was hoping in the one greater than himself. David gives rise to Solomon. He's got some good parts. He's got some bad parts. But ultimately, if you read 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11, in light of Deuteronomy 17, where it gives the instructions for the king, it goes through point by point and says, oh yeah, he multiplied war horses. He had more chariots than any other kingdom. Oh, he maximized wealth. And he multiplied his women. And in doing all of those three, reading the history of the covenant in light of the covenant materials, you see that Solomon's not the man. In fact, he's going exactly the opposite of how that future royal deliverer that all of us are hoping in, as we're reading the story, will act. 
And so we get the fall narrative here. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. However, however, curse is not the final word, and I'm always going to to work in the way that I'm working in order to preserve the means by which my promises will come. He said through the line of Judah, and now through the line of David, The ultimate offspring, deliverer, will rise. So he says, for the sake of David, your son, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen, I will redeem, I will retain for the southern kingdom of Judah a single tribe. Judah will remain a kingdom, and then there will be the north, and that will be called Israel, but a separated state. So now you've got Judah in the south, Israel in the north, no longer the great dominant power of the ancient world as they were at this time. Because there was a power vacuum. Egypt's power waned. Assyria's power had not grown. And so in the days of David, in the days of Solomon, Israel was the chief empire, just, just waiting to expand in even greater ways. But it wasn't the kingdom that we were expecting. It's not the one. We're waiting for the kingdom of Christ and the true son of David, the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham. And David wasn't it nor was Solomon. So the kingdom gets separated. The northern kingdom comes to an end in 722. This is the commentary. And, and just like we saw in Joshua 21, look for these commentary moments where the narrator who's writing the story actually gives us his words. He stops telling us the story and he tells us how we're to read the story. He actually gives us his interpretation. If you've come to this point in the book and you don't get the point, then you need to understand it. Let me, let me unpack it for you, he says. And that's what 2, Samuel, 2 Kings 17 does. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Therefore the Lord was angry, and he removed Israel out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So in 723, the northern kingdom falls by Assyria. They come down from the north and destroy. But God doesn't let Judah get destroyed. Because he moves in the heart of Hezekiah to humble himself. And God protects. God protects. But it doesn't last forever. In the days of Hezekiah, Isaiah is the prophet. I have trodden the winepress alone. I have trampled down the peoples in my anger. Here's 2 Kings 25. All that's left is Judah in the south. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, and the... Tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried all of them into exile. Northern kingdom gone, southern kingdom gone in 586, and all of Jerusalem was laid waste. The entire city devastated. And you read about it in the book of Lamentations, the amazing pain and brokenness 
that the curse brings. The curse is no light matter. And what's going to happen on judgment day at the end of the age is this kind of judgment on a global scale. It will be like Chernobyl around the world. It will be like Hiroshima and Nagasaki globally. The wrath of God not leaving anyone, anyone who is not finding refuge in his son, no one will survive. He will find them all as a just judge. We have to feel the weightiness of sin. And the Old Testament is drawing us in to just feel God is holy. I am not. I need a Savior. I'm part of the problem. I'm not part of the solution. Reading the Old Testament rightly will destroy our pride because we'll see ourselves on the pages all the time. Desperately in need of someone greater. Here it is. At every stage, we've seen it. It's dark, yes, but there's still a light always shining. Here we see it in 2 Samuel 7. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. David knew he was not the one. He knew that he would die. He knew that his body would become corrupted. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this promise, they just, they just latch onto it. They knew what God promised in Genesis 3.15 regarding the deliverer coming from the offspring of the woman and crushing the head of the serpent. They knew what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 22, that your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They knew what he had promised through the proclamation of Jacob regarding Judah. The, the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. And he will rise and crush all his enemies. They knew what God had promised through Balaam. That the star would come and crush the forehead of Moab. But now all of it is, is gaining even greater clarity, greater focus. Because it's going to come through the line of David. And so you can, you can get a sense for what desperation there was when Judah actually fell. When Jerusalem was destroyed. Has God forgotten his promises? And prophets like Ezekiel preaching in the exile, Daniel preaching in the exile, came in to remind the people, no, God has not forgotten. The Davidic king will come. Why did there have to be an initial restoration? We're not there yet, almost there. Why did there have to be an initial restoration? Because they had to come back to the land, because the king had to be born in Bethlehem. They had to be restored so that the one that they were hoping in could come. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I don't think Psalm 2 was written about David. The image is far too grand. The inheritance is far too vast. This is indeed a prophecy about the true anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. 
You are my son, he said. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, Father, give me the nations. Yes, I will. Make, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them, all of these enemies, with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, do you hear what I have told my son? Hear, O kings, and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Notice, honoring the Lord, serving the Lord is not... He does not lose any glory when you kiss the Son and surrender to His anointed one. They're intimately united so that you can give your allegiance to the Son and be honoring the Lord at the exact same time. Kiss the Son lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled but blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The only way to be guarded from the wrath of God is to be finding refuge in His Son. Psalm 72, again, I believe, totally envisioning only the Messiah's coming, not dealing with David. These are direct prophecies, I believe, right in the Psalter, pointing ahead. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Do you hear the Abrahamic covenant promise there? It's it's recalling Genesis 22. Through him, all the world will be blessed. Yes, in this single royal offspring in the line of David that God calls son. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. His name is Jesus. Here's Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You need wisdom tonight? Go to the right place. Everlasting Father. Remember, Abraham was going to be called the father of a multitude of nations. Jesus is the representative of Abraham. Through Jesus, Abraham's fatherhood is realized. He becomes the father of a multitude. Prince of peace. Anxiety, worry, fear. Reconciliation with God. Jesus is the answer. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, ever expanding. Hear that. Ever expanding. Of the increase of his government and of his peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish it. This is the kind of hope that the remnant, the very few in the Old Testament that were holding fast to hope, that's the kind of promise that they were looking at. Grasping onto. And even us today, in this already but not yet time period, already we can claim these promises. We need to know because he's already come, but he hasn't come in all of his fullness. All the world has been subjected to him, and yet we do not see that it has all been subjected to him, says the writer of Hebrews. He's already accomplished it. Every promise already yes, and yet we're still battling sin. We're still battling cancer and car accidents. But the day will come where it will all be pushed aside.
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. See if you can track this text. It may rock some of your perspectives, but see if you can track it. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. I believe that this is, that this is okay, what this is is one of the four servant songs in Isaiah, where Isaiah predicts the ultimate single servant, Jesus. Two of these servant songs are autobiographical in first person, as if Jesus was talking. And two of them are biographical, where the narrator, Isaiah, is talking about the servant. The last of the servant songs is Isaiah 53. He will be wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In that context, the one who is suffering is called the servant of the Lord. This is the second of the servant songs. First one is Isaiah 42. Second one is Isaiah 49. Third one is Isaiah 50, 51. And the fourth one is Isaiah 53. Listen to me. This is in first person. O coastlands, I'm talking to the ends of the earth, not just to Israel. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, Yahweh, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's how he does battle. He just speaks. And he cuts down his enemies. His mouth is the sword. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In the quiver he hid me away for that appointed time. Now notice what it said. It said, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. What is your name? He said to me, you are my servant. And what's his name? His name is Israel. The one who is called from the womb is named Israel. You are my servant, Israel. Get that. The one who's called from the womb has a name. His role is servant. His name is Israel. Now we keep reading. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Whatever the servant is going to do is going to be in great glory to the Father. And now the Lord says, hear this. The Lord says, which Lord? The one who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Now let me just pause there. The one that was formed from the womb to be God's servant. What's his name? Israel. We see that in verse 3. His name is Israel. And now he goes on. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Wait, what's the name of the person who was formed in the womb? Israel. And what is the mission of Israel according to this text? To bring Israel back. How does that work? 
Wheels are turning. That's good. Do you see the tension in the text? Do you see it? The one who was formed in the womb has a name. His name is Israel, and his role is to bring Jacob back, to gather Israel back to the Lord. The second Israel that needs to be redeemed, I believe, is the nation. But the first Israel that will do the redeeming is their representative. And he is so identified with them, he bears their name. Jesus is Israel. He will do and be what Israel was supposed to do and be. He will be the royal priest son who will operate perfectly, imaging the holiness of God as the nation was supposed to do. He will stand as their representative substitute, fully identifying with them, taking all of their sins upon himself. He will be them. He became sin, who knew no sin. He became it. Fully identified with his people. Fulfilling all that they were supposed to be and do. He is Israel who redeems Israel. But notice the last line. This is so great. What is this Lord who called me from the womb in order to bring Israel back? What does he say? It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring Israel, the preserved of Israel, back. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small that he would just redeem Israel. He's going to enter in and save a bunch of Gentiles too. Because he is the instrument through whom the blessing of God would reach the nations. He is the one who would move Abraham from being a father of a nation to being a father of a multitude of nations. He is the one that they've been hoping in all the way since Genesis. He's the light that would overcome all darkness. Shatter all brokenness and slay the serpent. I have a, one of the, my fellow faculty members. If, you, if, you, if I was to ask you, how would you summarize the entire story of God? I summarize it this way. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. That's my summary. Sounds kind of abstract. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. I think that summarizes the message of the Bible. My friend's summary is this. Story of God. Kill the dragon, get the girl. We are the bride of Christ. Kill the dragon... Get the girl. I like it. He is Israel. But it is too light a thing that the bride would be just one people. No, I have come to redeem globally. To call a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation to myself. I am a light overcoming all darkness. Not just some of the darkness. How will he bring it about? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The cross does not happen by accident. It was the will of the Lord. They were simply doing what God's purpose had predestined to occur, Acts chapter 4. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, hear that. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's the lamb that was slain. He's put on the altar. Is that lamb alive? What happens to the lamb when he's slain? He's dead. But then it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, when he becomes that offering on the altar, he shall see. What does that imply about the lamb that was dead? He's not dead anymore. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If his soul will Make an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Do you get that? Right there we see a hint of where we're going in the overlap of the ages. It's called the great exchange. All of my sin put upon him and all of his righteousness counted toward me. That's what it says. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Do the Old Testament prophets really envision a suffering Christ who will rise and from that work, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed throughout the entire world? Yes, it does. And our hearts can be edified and nurtured in hope in the gospel by reading Jesus' Bible. I hope you're seeing that. In all, there's one principle that governed God's actions during the conquest in the kingdoms. He acted for his glory. Yahweh worked for the fame of his name, exerting great patience with Israel and always preserving a remnant. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Whether barren woman or priest, prophet or king, shepherd or warrior, Israelite or foreigner. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For, my, for the sake of my praise, he says, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. He's not going to totally wipe out all of Israel. Why? For the sake of his name. For my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should, I, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And that passion is right, is necessary, 
and loving. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where God is heading. Government in the land. It's 9.13. I really wanted to finish the Old Testament tonight. Questions? Let me just pause and see. Questions? Yes? Yes. Mine? My, you got the other one? Okay. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Mine is God reigns, saves, and satisfies. How? Through covenant. Why? For his glory. In whom? In Christ. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. Got it? God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. Yes. Right. Okay, the question was, do I think that Israel is important as a nation still? And did the regathering of Israel as a physical nation in 1948 relate to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? The ingathering that is promised of Israel in the Old Testament, as I see it, we're told, is fulfilled initially in the decree of Cyrus to bring Israel back to the land. The book of Ezra opens up by telling us that the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted were about to be fulfilled. And that's why Cyrus, God moved Cyrus to make the decree that Israel would come back to their land. But that happened in 538 B.C. And I think that that Initial restoration was designed to get Israel back in the land so that the offspring could rise up, the king could rise from Bethlehem. They needed to be back there. But Daniel tells us that in Daniel chapter 9, he's expecting the fulfillment of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy, and God says, well, stage one is fulfilled, 70 years, but I tell you there's going to be 70 weeks of years. And then how to understand that particular prophecy is, I mean, I have my own understanding, but the not all Bible-loving, God-exalting, Jesus-cherishing people agree on that. But we know that it's anticipating the coming of Jesus who will do away with all evil and establish atonement. 
I know that God was doing something in 1948. But I don't see anything in either the Old or New Testament that necessarily directly relates with what happened in 1948. He's always doing something everywhere. But I, do, I personally believe that Romans 11.26 does anticipate that in the future, right now, Jesus is the only... It, Jesus is the stump of Abraham, the olive tree, and in him are, in Jesus, are both native, I'm trying to remember how it's worded there in Romans 11, native branches and wild branches that have been engrafted in. There's Jews and there's Gentiles coming from the original root of Abraham. Romans 4, sorry, Galatians 4 tells us that not just Gentiles have to be adopted, even the Jews have to be adopted. Because Jesus is Israel. All of Israel gets boiled down to one. And I believe Paul would say that unless you are by faith identified with him, you are like the nations. But Paul, I think, still envisioned a day, and he gets that vision out of Deuteronomy 32, 43 or 46. Deuteronomy 32 it's in Romans 10:15 where he cites the text. He anticipates that be, so what what Deuteronomy 32:43 I think it is tells us is that God is Israel has made God jealous. And because of that he's going to make them jealous with a people that were not his. That is Deuteronomy Moses even envisioned that in the future God would after Israel rejects the Lord, do a work among the nations that would, in time, bring jealousy among a great number of Jews. It's kind of like, it's kinda like a, a little child who gets a Christmas present and on Christmas Day is thrilled with it. It was the present that she really wanted or he really wanted. And... Three days later, though, it's in the closet and forgotten until neighbor boy Johnny comes over and finds this toy in the closet. And all of a sudden, that toy is your kid's favorite toy. That is my toy, and I want it back. And I think Paul envisioned, I personally think that Paul is envisioning a day, and Moses envisioned a day when a large number of ethnic Jews would all of a sudden have jealousy aroused in their soul and they will want to come back. And the beauty of the gospel is that that gift that was rejected initially is big enough not only for them to enjoy, but for Johnny, neighborhood boy, to enjoy as well. So it's very possible that the future re-engrafting of a very large number of Jews who get adopted back into the family, cherishing Christ by faith, that that has something to do with what happened in 1948, to get a whole bunch of Jews in one location. It, it, it can make sense to me that that might be the means by which God could draw them in, but I'm not one who is quick to read my newspaper and say... Um, you know, Jesus is coming back on Tuesday. Yeah. I, 
I'm, I don't go there. I'm very hesitant to think that my generation, our generation is when it's going to happen. But we know he's going to return. And I think the Bible teaches that there will be before that an awakening of ethnic Jews back to their Messiah. I hope that answers at least how I understand things playing out. I'm just leaving you all in suspense. I didn't even get you to the end of the Old Testament. We're just hanging in there. The story of God is is a big story. All right, let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would go with these brothers and sisters. They are investing so much to be here night after night after massively full days as moms and workers and dads encourage and help them we need you to sustain there's so much in the story it's beautiful we don't want our affections to dim to wane in light of our weariness So we just ask that you would continue to keep our minds attentive. We can't get it all, so let us, each one, receive what you would have for us. Give us truth that can carry us into tomorrow. Thank you that there will be fresh mercies. All that we need for tomorrow will be there tomorrow. It's been purchased for us. We rest and celebrate. We celebrate that you are a God who does not let curse be the final word who lets light shine into the darkness. Be honored through our lives, I pray. Help us in Christ. Amen. Good night. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His glory in Christ.